0: Uh, not only with three different cohesive topics, but this week Jeremy is sharing with us. Would you give him a warm welcome? Yeah, I'm. I'm s- Man, that's awesome. I'm super stoked. <laughs> I am so happy to have him up here this week. Uh, next week, Carson is going to be sharing with us, which y'all know Carson. He is phenomenal. Uh, and then I get to take the third week. So just kind of looking forward to hearing Advent from these three different perspectives. So uh, Jeremy, it's, it's all you. And we're glad to have you up here, buddy. Thank you. Let's pray. Father God, you give good gifts. Uh, I have no idea what to get anybody for Christmas, but uh, you are such a good gift giver, and you even allow us to uh, know what we're getting for Christmas early and to start unwrapping it. Uh, I pray that you would just reveal your good gift this morning through the prophecy in Isaiah, and that you would usher us into a season of joy. Uh, Touch our hearts and our minds and expand our fellowship, we pray to the glory uh, of your Son, In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Well, we're going to have some fun this morning. Uh, I know what you're getting for Christmas. Spoiler alert, it's more government. <laughs> and we get to start unwrapping it this morning. Uh, I am introducing our series uh, for Advent The king has come, so we're all getting a king for Christmas, Uh, and that's a little awkward for Americans because we have some issues with kings, but it might make you feel better uh, to know that most nations throughout human history have had issues with kings, and I'm actually going to spend the first half this morning, we're going to do some audience participation I'm going to need a bunch of volunteers, because the first half we're going to be doing, we're going to attempt to do 100 years in 10 minutes, the history leading up to Christmas. And we're going to do a little Game of Thrones kind of activity. So I need a bunch of uh, volunteers. I say participation, I really need you to stand here and hold a name tag. So if you like history, I need like at least seven people here on the stage, I need three people on the steps, and I need, uh, I don't know, three or four people down here on the floor. And you might want to move up so that you can see the names. So if you love history, come up. Uh, If you love soap operas, come up. Uh, Even if you love baseball, because I mean, it's going to be like... 95% standing around with three seconds of action. This is going to be fun. All right, I need like seven people up on the stage. And three really stable people on the stairs. Oh. Here are your name tags. Choose wisely. I'm just kidding. None of them are good. <laughs> the red one's on the stairs. I need more people. You're on the floor. and We need at least two more people on the floor. <laughs> we have more for the stage. Yeah, we can fill those out. I think we need one more up there, one more on the stage. All right, I think that's it. I could have kept going with name tags, but I had to stop somewhere. So a brief introduction, could you step down a step? Because we want to see those name tags up there. I'm going to move you guys around a little bit. Uh, So I need you three, you two... On the far right, I need Crassus over here. Cleopatra, you're right in the middle. And Caesarion, you're with Cleopatra. Oh yeah. Caesarion. Yeah. <laughs> Caesarion means little Caesar, yeah. uh, and it was Cleopatra's son. Crassus, Pompey. I need Julius over here. So these are the Romans. The rich and the powerful get the stage. That's how the world works. This is the first triumvirate of Rome. And this is the second triumvirate of Rome. On the stage here, we have the Idumeans, an evil family that's going to take over Israel. (laughs) And down here, we have the locals. Uh, These are the descendants of the Maccabees who led a revolt to free Israel. You see, in the years of silence from the last prophet Malachi uh, up until Christmas, 400 years of silence, no prophets, the line of David has disappeared in Babylon. Uh, And there is no word from God. So in that time, Alexander the Great takes over the world. And dies young. So all of his generals break up his empire. And in that chaos, eventually some of those smaller areas are able to break free. One of the Greek uh, generals or somebody somewhere uh, desecrates the temple and forbids Judaism. So the Maccabees revolt. And the Maccabees, because of all the chaos in the Greek world, the Maccabees are able to achieve independence for Israel. And they're even able to uh, conquer some nearby territories, like Edumea, force them to be circumcised and convert to Judaism. Um, so, just to give you a little bit of a hint here, we're gonna, it's going to be a little messy, because it was really messy. <laughs> Salome was married to a man named Aristobulus, a Maccabee. His father had conquered several things. When his father passed away, when her father, her father-in-law, passed away, he left the crown to his wife and not to her husband. So her husband put his mother and his brothers in jail where his mother was starved to death, And he became king. So Salome's husband became king. It's good to be king. (laughs) Uh, Then her husband dies. uh, Cause of death unknown. As will be very common in some of these scenarios. Salome uh, frees her brothers and marries the next oldest brother who becomes king. It's good to be king. Well, you're not queen. You are queen. But wait, you're going to be king. You're going to be (laughs) king-queen. Because that next brother dies. Cause of death unknown. And Salome receives the crown. It's good to be king. Salome was actually uh, very effective. And I think you might have even died of natural causes. What was that? We don't know. But... uh, Unfortunately, at at your death you had two sons, Antigonus and Aristotle. Oh wait, I'm missing a card. Uh oh. I need one more volunteer. All right. Antigonus, I need you over here, and I need you here. So she has two sons. Hircan and Aristobulus. Hirkin's a Pharisee, and she appoints him as high priest. Uh, the Pharisees are more focused on Judaism. They're inward focused. So they're focused on remembering who they are as Jewish people according to God's word and getting God's word right. Aristobulus is more of a general. He's a Sadducee. And the Sadducees are more outward focused. They want to establish Israel, but in order to do that, they need to understand and work with the Greeks and the Romans and everybody else so that Israel can be secure. So at Salome's death, do you want to do a cool dying scene? <laughs> if I fall down, i will be able to get up. <laughs> it was a natural death, so I'm not sure what you do. But unfortunately, you're out of the game but in a way you won because it was natural and she leaves her crown to Hirken. Uh Hirkan is high priest Aristobulus is more of the general type and it took about three months before Aristobulus says the army likes me better than you Give me your crown. <laughs> Hirkin <laughs> runs to his brother's house and takes his wife and child hostage. <laughs> and Aristobulus says, Bro, wait, you can still be high priest. You're just not king anymore, but I'll give you a high priest. So they come to some sort of an agreement, which I guess is admirable. So he steals the crown but he doesn't kill his brother, which is really admirable. (laughs) Um, Enter our Edomaians. Antipater is the father. Antipater is observing the situation, and when I think of Antipater, I think of Jafar in Aladdin. And Antipater... Observes the situation, and he approaches Hirkin. And he says, oh, I can see how badly treated you've been. For you deserve the crown that your mother gave. You're the oldest, and she chose you. It's really terrible. You must not have wanted to be king anymore. I happen to have Arabs, because Antipater is from across the Jordan, from Edumea, I have Arab armies who want to come and help you. Uh, and Hircan says, Okay, Antipater, let's do that. <laughs> so Hircan brings armies, Arab armies, and they come and reestablish him as king. It's good to be king. Um, then... <laughs> Let me think. It, then it starts getting really complicated. So, we have, can you have me, I'm going to sneak up here and grab this sheet, because I have to start working in some Romans. Um. The Romans had been going through their own civil wars, a series of them. Uh, Julius had lost everything when he was 16 and went into the military. Crassus had defeated Spartacus uh, and became Mr. Rich and Powerful of the Roman Senate. And Crassus helped form an alliance between Pompey, who was the conqueror of the East, and Julius, who had risen in the ranks and become conqueror of the West. Unfortunately, Crassus didn't know when to stop. He continued fighting battles, uh, and he died... He was captured by the Parthians, or Persians, based more out of the Babylon area. Uh, they captured him, and they poured gold down his throat, because he was very greedy. <coughs> do you want to do a cool death scene? Yeah. <laughs> You're out of the game. Now, Pompey, who was conqueror of the east... Heard about all the stuff that was going on in Israel, and he was like, I'm sick of their squabbling, right? Hierkin and Aristobulus. So Pompey goes to put a stop to it. So Pompey marches on Israel, and he conquers Israel. And that's where Israel becomes an official Roman province, when it's conquered by Pompey. So Pompey takes over, and he does something very similar uh, to Antipater. He says, uh, eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Well, wait, even though Aristobulus has a better bride, I just found oh, here." <laughs> Brothers, what are you going to do? <laughs> Even though Aristobulus has a better bride, Hyrcan is more malleable. So Pompey reestablishes Hyrcan as the king uh, because uh, Aristobulus had already actually come and retaken uh, Israel from the Arab armies. The Arabs weren't enough. But Pompey puts a stop to it. Hyrken is the king. Um, Back in Rome, Crassus had died, and Crassus was the rich and powerful center of the Senate who kept the alliance together. Julius was much too popular for the republic to handle. So when it was election time, uh, Julius was concerned because the Senate was afraid of him that they would not ratify his election. So Julius gathers his armies and he crosses the Rubicon and he marches on Rome. That's a lot to take in. But at least you weren't afraid to fight your own battles. Pompey is conqueror of the East. So his legions are far away. The Senate tries to get Pompey to fight Julius. You got to stop this. But Pompey doesn't have his legions. So Julius starts chasing Pompey around the world. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Eventually, Pompey uh, runs to Egypt where a few years beforehand, Cleopatra had returned with her father from Rome and retaken Egypt from their sister. Cleopatra was not Egyptian, by the way. She was Greek. She had learned Egyptian, the only Greek to learn Egyptian, so there's that. So you defeated your sister. Your father became king. When he died, then you and your brother had to fight over it. Which, But first the Egyptians killed Pompey to try and gain favor with Julius. So you're dead. (laughs) Sorry, you're out. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Julius uh, goes to Egypt... To help resolve the issue with Cleopatra and her brother. And Julius actually tries to divide Egypt equally. And Cleopatra's brother didn't think that was fair. So, uh, Cleopatra's brother and sister uh, put Julius and Cleopatra under siege for several months in a fort. Uh, Antipater who is managing a lot of Israel and had befriended Pompey, who conquered Israel, now is like, uh, Pompey's dead. Julius is in charge, and I was Pompey's friend. (laughs) So Antipater gathers some troops and supplies from Israel, and he goes to help break the siege against Julius, and thereby, very successfully, gains favor with Julius. Uh, the siege is broken. They're freed. Uh, the, Cleopatra's brother is killed. Your sister's exiled. But you get Egypt. It's good to be king. <laughs> <laughs> and about nine months after the siege, Caesarea is born. Oh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, because of that, Julius appoints Antipater as the official procurator of Israel. So, even though these guys might still have some titles, Antipater's running the show. And Antipater appoints Phasiel, his oldest son, as governor of Jerusalem, and Herod as governor of Samaria. Okay. Herod takes his job very seriously. Like his father, he knows that all of his power comes from Rome. So he does a very effective job of raising taxes and killing rebels. Or, you know, outlaws. He calls them outlaws. But, uh, you know, politicians... can call anybody they want to outlaws. He crucified several hundred uh, outlaws and rebels by which he may have meant Maccabean supporters. Uh, much to his chagrin, Hircan, as high priest, um, and might still retain the title of king, Uh, puts Herod under trial for his abuses of power and actually has him exiled. Herod wants to go punch him in the face. (laughs) And Antipater gives his son the wave and says, Timing, my boy, timing. (laughs) Be patient, my son. (laughs) Uh, About this time or not long after this time, Antipater is poisoned. Death scene? (laughs) And Julius is murdered by his own senate. Death scene? (laughs) Mm -hmm. This throws Rome into chaos. Uh, and there begins a whole other civil war, which eventually these three gentlemen win. Lepidus was Julius's friend in the Senate. Mark Antony was his right-hand man general. And Octavian was his nephew. So Octavian, or Octavius Caesar. Um, um, well, let's just... Go ahead and stick with Rome. So, they have a fairly nice balance of power until Mark Antony falls in love with Cleopatra. Oh, Oh, that works well. (laughs) Now this is a problem because that's an imbalance of power because now mark antony who was julius's number 1 general is now married to his mistress and father to julius's son dangerous imbalance of power so octavian steals lepidus's legions <laughs> sorry man he just takes them <laughs> And he forces you into retirement. It was somewhat embarrassing, but you leave with your head. That's a win. So you're out. (laughs) Octavian then uses his double legions to chase Mark Antony around the world. They end up in Egypt. Uh, they're defeated. Mark Antony and Cleopatra both commit suicide. Oh, okay. mm-hmm. okay. Nice. And it takes a while, but eventually Caesarion is strangled. Oh, wow. The world is not big enough for two Caesars. While that is happening, Antigonus, who is Aristobulus' son, oh, by the way, uh, when Pompey conquered Israel, Aristobulus was the general, the local general, right? So he, uh, you were a prisoner to Rome. You hung out in Rome for a while with your other son, Alexander. I didn't give him a name tag. Julius kept you there because he was thinking he might need to use you against Pompey in Israel. But when Pompey died, he didn't need you anymore. So you were executed and your son was beheaded. Your other son, Antigonus. <laughs> Antigonus, you're fine. <laughs> but while this is happening, While Rome is distracted with all their things that are going on, Antigonus goes and makes friends with the Parthians. He brings them back, and he retakes Israel with their help. And Antigonus becomes king. It's good to be king. And when he does that, he invites Fasiel, governor of Jerusalem, and here come to a meeting where he murders (laughs) Fasiel. Death scene. On the stairs. Yeah. (laughs) And for his dear uncle, he only cuts off your ears. (gasps) Because then you can't be high priest anymore. You're deformed. But you're alive. Still. (laughs) Um Herod had been exiled to Rome. It took a while to get through all of this stuff, but there's no way that Octavian with Israel, Israel is a Roman province because it had been conquered. It was theirs, and it was attacked by Parthians who helped establish Antigonus, so Rome was not going to put up with that. So Herod talks them into supporting him. Herod comes back with Roman armies. They defeat Antigonus, who is executed by Rome's Your de- death scene. Mm, no. Antigonus. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Eventually, and they uh, establish Herod officially as king of the Jews. Good to be king. Good to be king. (laughs) Even though you are not from Israel and not really Jewish. Mm -hmm. Eventually, uh, Herod gives him a token title. Here can a token title... Uh, and eventually, he just can't stand you anymore, and he kills you. <laughs> Death scene? Death scene. Mm-hmm. Years. Not only that, but when Herod returns to Israel, he takes Mariamne, who was Aristobulus' granddaughter, as a wife. He has to get rid of his other wife and child first, <laughs> but he takes Maryamne as a wife because she's a real Maccabean princess again the Maccabees were not of the tribe of Levi so they weren't really priests and they weren't of the tribe of Judah so they weren't really kings but in that time they were the kings that Israel had so he took a Maccabean princess as a wife they had a couple kids Uh, And eventually, being an extremely jealous and paranoid person, you execute your wife for plotting, and you don't strangle your sons until they're old enough to start plotting themselves. And then they're dead too. (laughs) All the little kids are downstairs, right? This (laughs) history is not PG. So Herod, very effectively, kills every single Maccabean heir. And we are left with two men standing. Octavian has defeated every single enemy in Rome, and Herod has defeated every single enemy in Israel. These are the kings that Israel knew. And the kings that Israel had come to expect. And this is important context, not just for today, but as Carson tackles uh, the story of Mary and Joseph going to pay taxes next week, or when Pastor Brett tackles the wise men and they hear there's a new king of the Jews. This is the context of those things that were happening. And I'm a guy, thanks guys, you win. <clears throat> Not that you don't have incredibly terrible deaths, <laughs> that is the context of Kings. I'm the kind of guy who thinks that no one can really uh, receive the gospel, the good news, until they really grasp the bad news first. (laughs) So when we say we're getting a king for Christmas, and we look at this context, the last thing we want is another king. But that's why we have a prophecy to show us in Isaiah chapter 9. We have some slides that we're going to put up and go through pretty quickly. A prophecy that's going to give us a king, but what kind of king? What kind of king does God prepare and send? As the world already has lots of kings, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they're glad when they divide the spoil. People in darkness. Uh, now, we like to complain about our politics And there's a lot of darkness. But when you think about this context, Israel had no country, (laughs) and their leader wasn't even Jewish. A murderer, absolutely brutal, raising taxes, crucifying rebels. Deep, deep darkness. And the cry of their heart leading up to Christmas was, Make our nation great again. That's what they wanted. That was their prayer to God and their understanding of the Messiah. God is going to make our nation great again. And this prophecy, in a way, (laughs) confirms that. You will multiply the nation. But what is the measure of the nation's greatness? Joy. Joy will be the measure of this nation's greatness. Three times it says joy. You've increased its joy. They'll rejoice before you. Joy at the harvest. The measure of the greatness of this nation will not be its wealth or its global dominance the measure of the greatness of this new nation will be its joy. Then, that's like the intro to the prophecy. And then it goes into uh, what I like to think of as roots. Because the word of God is alive. And it's all tied together. And prophecies aren't as much about predicting the future as they are about fulfilling the past. So this prophecy looks back. Uh, I have a little. I have, I have a few more names here, as we prepare for our Christmas gift. The next passage in Isaiah: For the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now, if you're reading this casually, uh, uh, much of the Old Testament doesn't make sense because we're not backwards-oriented people. We're future-oriented people. But when you hear this imagery, uh, a Jewish reader thinks back What are these images from? These are Exodus words, right? The yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulders, the bar across the shoulders that he used to carry clay and straw for the Egyptians, or the billy club of his oppressor. So you're supposed to think about Moses, And even more specifically, it says the day of Midian. Now Moses had several encounters with Midians, but so did Gideon. Gideon was a judge, and in that time, Midian had enslaved the Israeli people, the Jewish people. And Gideon rose up. Uh, He had an army of 30,000 to face uh, the Midianites, who are 120,000. And God said, uh, too many. <laughs> he narrowed it down to 300 soldiers. And in the middle of the night, do you remember how Gideon won freedom for his people? Lights in the darkness. <laughs> he smashed his uh, clay pots and surrounded the Midianites with torches, with 300 torches in the middle of the night. And the Midianites went crazy and started killing each other. They defeated 120,000 with light. (laughs) Moses, Gideon. But the neat thing about this passage is not only is God putting the kings of history, Gideon, by the way, is the first person that the Jewish people wanted to make king, Not Samuel. (laughs) They wanted to make Gideon king. The neat thing, though, is that God is not just preparing a gift with all the greatest leaders in Jewish history, but what kind of leader? Now, any of the kings that we just went through, what would they do with the tools of oppression? They'd save them and use them against their enemies. But what will this king do? He'll break them in half. I don't use those tools. Not in my kingdom. What about these boots and cloaks? We burn. All my soldiers will burn their boots. We will not march around the world conquering the weakest towns and countries that we can find and taking what they have. We're not marching anywhere. I don't use those tools. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Go back even further before Gideon, before Moses. What what image do you see? Abraham, who was given a son. And this word uh, government in the text is misarah. The root word is Sarah. A son is given to Abraham and Sarah, a miracle son. God puts that in his gift. The father of the nation. The father of faith. The government will be on his shoulders. I love this switch. He'll take the things that oppress off of the shoulders of his people, and he'll put the government on his own shoulders. He's going to carry us. Now most of these other kings they lived off of the taxes of their people and they'd even have people carry them around on litters right on their shoulders this king he carries us around <laughs> he parades us on his shoulder this is a different kind of king of the increase Of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness. For this time forth and forevermore. David, the king, the man after God's own heart. We're going to put that in our gift. I am very thankful for democracy, (laughs) especially when you compare it to the monarchies of old. Our democracies are kind of a blend, really, of the judges of the Old Testament who interpret the laws and decide cases, uh, the representatives of the Roman Republic so that everybody has a voice and temporary monarchs who actually get something done, hopefully. Democracy tries to blend all of those systems together. It takes the power of kings who are fighting life and death for 100% control uh, and changes it into groups of people who are continually struggling for 51% of the influence. Uh, So it lowers the risks, right? Nobody's going to die in this process, but it doesn't change the process. Every two, every four years, it's an all-out cultural war for 51% of the authority. No, no one's ever going to get 100%. And the thing about that system is every two or four years, whoever's the new 51% is going to undo whatever was done before. Uh, I think it was Churchill who said, uh, democracy is the worst system of government, except for all the other ones that have been tried so far. (laughs) (laughs) But the thing about this new government of the increase Of his government and peace, there will be no end. It will never stop growing. It won't be continual wave after wave after wave of of waves of undoing. No more of that. (laughs) His government might start small. It might start mysterious. It might start quiet. But it's going to grow, and it's never, never going to stop growing. Where is the Roman Empire? Where's the Greek Empire? Where's the Mongolian Empire? They're stopped. They're undone. This kingdom is growing quietly, <laughs> but it's growing the thing I love about this gift, though, my favorite part about this prophecy is at the very end, uh, it says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That word and several words that I'd like to highlight are creation words. This word, he will do this, is the same word he uses for create. It's only God creates. It says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will create this. Uh, not out of any kind of pre-existing material of things that he can work with and make something out of in the world. No, it's going to take something new. This kingdom needs to be recreated. Just like the imagery, go, go even further back. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, who have dwelt in deep darkness on them, a light has shone. That's creation language. The chaos... The void, the darkness, that's what Israel was living in leading up to Christmas. Chaos, darkness, a light is their symbol. Because creation, a new creation, not just a new king, but a new creation is coming. Or he will call his name Wonderful Counselor, just as he called the light day and the darkness night. This new light, he will call Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Why is creation, so we have to wrap this gift in light. Creation is so important because any dictator... Right can rule his people and enforce his standard upon them through propaganda and punishment. But no matter how good that dictator is, people are still people. And the dictator can't do everything. So if this kingdom really is to be new and wonderful and joyful... He has to be able to make new citizens. Paul Tillich was a theologian. And he said, we have to build a better man before we can build a better society. And that's what this king does. He recreates. A king who doesn't establish a new kingdom and just invite people into it, Right, like switching churches. No, he creates new citizens and they are his kingdom. Christmas answers the prayer of make our nation great again with receive the one who is great and the one who recreates a kingdom around himself. It's a kingdom that is diverse in class and race, every tongue and tribe and nation and social class. But he does it in a way that brings joy and wonder in its diversity instead of fear and power struggle. Christmas sends you a king who's worthy to be followed He fights fair, he leads fair, he's generous with his glory, a king who will carry you on his shoulders and will even die for that burden because he realizes that he needs needs to show you that you need to be willing to die in order to be recreated as a citizen It's not just another king or another kingdom. It's a new one. I want to invite Scott to lead us in song and open up the communion tables because the king has come. And I want you to come (laughs) and spend the next few minutes. Meet your king and find the joy that he has for you.